1: Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So, you know, I'm a fan of the show Mythbusters, right? Oh, definitely. And I was reading Carrie Byron's new book where she talks about one of the crazier explosions she's ever done, and it involves. A creamer cannon. Creamer? Like, what do you mean? Like coffee creamer? Yeah, it's like super explosive. She and the team watched this YouTube video where this guy put creamer over a lighter and it made a flame. So they decided to supersize it by building a giant air cannon and shooting it up into the air. And honestly, this thing is so terrifying. The stuff goes up, doesn't look like it's going to ignite. And then it just creates a giant puff of smoke. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, it just rips up into the sky and makes this enormous firebomb. It's insane. Oh, that sounds crazy. But the funniest part, and the thing I would never have realized from watching the show, was that the wind changed mid-explosion. And all this hot, milky firebomb started raining down from the sky. (laughs) And she and the build team were responsible for the cleanup. So apparently coffee creamer bomb residue is disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Carrie has one of the most fun, craziest jobs in the world, and we're lucky to have her on the program today. So let's dive in.
4: All right, well today we've got the wonderful Carrie Byron on the show, who most of you will remember from the build team on Mythbusters, but also the host of Head Rush, The White Rabbit Project, and so much more. And now she's the author of a new book that we're excited to talk about. It's called Crash Test Girl. So Carrie, welcome to
3: Part-Time Genius. Hi guys. Hey there. So, Carrie, before we start, I've got to say I'm actually from Delaware. I grew up with the Punkin' Chunkin' just being a thing only we knew about, but thank you for bringing it to a wider audience. And uh, I, I know you've hosted that and the Large Dangerous Rocketship Festival. Have you been surprised by the rise of the maker movement over the last decade or so? And how much do you think Mythbusters has contributed to it?
5: You know, the maker movement was coming about at the same time as Mythbusters. I think that was just the, the feeling that was in the air at the time is that people were getting really DIY and we were all riding that same wave. Um, I, you know, I do so make magazine out here. I just wrote an article for them cause I'm uh-huh. totally a fan of all things maker.
3: Yeah. It was such a fun movement to see, right? I mean, uh, we were huge fans of boing, boing and wired. And, and then like, I, I feel like all of that stuff, the DIY stuff exploded in such a big way. And, and, uh, and I, I love that you sort of come to it naturally, right? Like as an artist.
5: I've been doing it my whole life. I've always been somebody who likes to tinker and work with her hands. I love the smell of, you know, sawdust in the garage. I like making things. But, you know, I, I think maybe it might even be my little rebellion to technology in a bit because you know, everything you can do with a computer is faster and better. But I still really like erasing and using a pencil. And, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I like building things with my
0: hands in three dimensions.
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the new book is super fun. And I actually love how you use the scientific method as a means for examining, you know, your entire life, everything from the fun parts of your life to the difficult things you've had to Face, but it speaks to so many audiences that I, I'm curious who you actually were, were thinking about when you were writing the book. Who who is the book for?
5: Well, I'm not a writer, so for me, I only can write for the audience I know, which is myself. So I kind of feel like I wrote the audience for the person I was when I was 20 years old and starting out in life, the person who just is trying to figure out how to take big steps and how to create opportunities and how to make big moves. And, um, I, I, you know, wanted to lay out all of my journey so that maybe if I've made mistakes that you don't have to make, then great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I use the scientific method as a critical thinking tool, but really it's just an easy way to organize your thought process. So I think in making any decision in your life using the scientific method is just all about being able to analyze the results of the choices that you make.
3: Well, I mean, the the structure of the book's really fun. The content's uh, excellent, but I also just really love the sidebars that you throw in, they're so weird and funny. And things I hadn't even thought about, like the bad smells that are on TV sets and, uh, and also how you used things like um, black nail polish to cover up grease on your hands and stuff. I, I, I thought those elements were really fun. But would you actually walk us through some of the smells that maybe uh, people don't know about at home?
5: Well, I'm I'm a list maker. I've always just just for fun I make lists of things. And bad smells was a list that I had made. And I was looking through one of my journals. I'm like, I feel like this is something other people might find amusing.
0: <laughs>
5: and I, we, we 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 had a lot of bad smells on set because we worked with like a lot of animals. We worked with a lot of um, toxins and uh, you know everything from wolf urine from a female dog in heat to um, rotting meat that got left in the fridge over the weekend. I mean, we had a lot of really disgusting smells. I remember when you getting doing shark week one time, and we had to figure out how to cure shark skin for sandpaper. And when I was reading, like, how they do that, sailors would pee on the shark skin and let it just rot in the pee. So oh. I had to pee in a cup and put shark skin, which, you know, smells like fish, into that <laughs> urine and just let it um, sit. And ferment in my own urine in the shop, and I, I think that that is a that is a vile smell that nobody should ever have knowledge of. <laughs> uh, I mean, we had to capture farts and you know examine the constituents of the fart. We I mean, you know took it to a mass spectrometer so we could find out what makes them smell. I mean, capturing from everybody
4: you oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's uh it's kind of fun to get that behind the scenes you know something else you talked about in your book that um that I found just very interesting was you know you talked about your family struggling economically and one of the scenes that really sticks out to me is how you lived in your car at night and all this sounds terrifying but you know you also built this dummy to sit in the front seat to make it look like there was a man sitting in the car and I'm curious. You know, h- how did you come up with this idea, and and how do you know, as a teen, how to build a believable dummy?
5: <laughs> I, I just, you know, sometimes it's just a necessity of the moment, and to build a believable dummy, I've just always been somebody who I think was meant to be in sort of a special effects world. Maybe someday I'll actually get there. The TV they got in the way, but <laughs> I, I just, I, I always made things. You know, I made, I made sculptures of people. Time I was a little kid, my Halloween uh, house uh, every year was insane. So. Already knew how to make zombies, it's really not that far off from making a giant <laughs> human zombie. So, I just stuffed like one of my dad's old suits and put a hat on it and
3: used a skeleton mask for a face. Nobody's gonna come up with a mess of that. <laughs> That's really funny, it's probably true. So, uh, for, for me, Mythbusters was so much about settling bar bets, and I, I know you talk about it, but I, I know my friends and I at, uh, at a bar in Delaware actually were, were discussing like, could the car from Knight Rider really drive up a ramp like that on a truck and not crash? And then, obviously, the first thing you google you see you guys have covered it but i'm curious what was the writer's room like on the show and how did you guys come up with ideas and more importantly how do you decide what not to do
5: um well we never said no to things we generally were like how could we do these things and and you know we did have some parameters like it had to be buildable it had to be visual we couldn't have boogie boogie we can't go find out if vampires don't like garlic it has to be something scientific that Mm -hmm. we can actually come up with a conclusion so um you know with all of the diversity in the room, we have different people coming from different backgrounds, and um, we could come up with the most wild and wacky contraptions, because uh, I don't think any of us knew that you couldn't do things, you know? You could come up with, like... I remember sitting there the first time we came up, with the weirdest, biggest thing that we could is when we had this... Uh, there was this myth about somebody who catapulted themselves with a boom lift, and they we pranked down the bloom really hard um, with a chain or something, and then when they cut it, it catapulted the guy in the basket. Well, we tried it several times in, you know, its truest form, and it didn't catapult anybody. It just bounced a little. So <laughs> it's interesting and Everybody's like, well, how are we going to actually catapult the guy? And I was like, what if we made an actual catapult? Because I'm not an engineer. I don't know if it's possibility or not, and then we came up with stacking containers on top of each other, welding um, a pivot where the wheels are of the catapult and actually cranking it back for real and making a battle-sized catapult like the Munkin-Junkin and, and launching a dummy as far as we possibly could, and it... it, it uh, didn't work well, but it was a fantastic thing to see. I think our lack of engineering skills made it that we just didn't know whether things were actually impossible, so we went for it.
4: Wow, that's that's pretty great. Well, we've got plenty more questions for Carrie, but before that, a quick break.
1: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do
0: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius where we're talking to Carrie Byron, author of Crash Test Girl. You know, one of, one of my favorite parts of the, the White House in somewhat recent years has been the White House Science Fair, which, of course, you hosted. I was curious, what, what was it like getting that call and, and then, of course, being at the White House, being able to promote science?
5: It was so cool. <laughs> I love that. I, would, I couldn't believe it. When I told my parents, I was going to the White House, they are like, what? Like, what? <laughs> just walking into that place, it, the White House is just Something you see in the movies from far away, and actually getting clearance to walk inside and seeing all of the people that you see on the news every day just walking around, looking at their phones. I, it, it was incredible. Uh, I got to, you know, go meet all of these incredible kids that were doing things, you know, by age fifteen that I could not imagine doing now. And I, I met a kid who. Um, learned how to make a better sandbag by using the polymers from inside of a diaper. And he actually created a sandbag that would absorb water when there were floods and then go back to being flat so it could be easily moved and reused. Like, how did you think of that? You're 11. I mean, (laughs) inspiring and humbling. And at the time it was President Obama and just having him come and give me a hug and say my name in a speech. So it, it felt like I'd
4: made it. You know what I mean? That's pretty cool. I'd, I'd say that actually does qualify as having
3: made it. So, congratulations
0: <laughs> on that one. Well, if
3: uh,
5: Trump decides to have a science fair, I'll show
3: up for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's so fun to see your president just so excited about science and, and in awe of these kids. I, I just, that really was such a highlight. But, um, I, I'm curious, you know, your tasks in that build room seem to be so different. You know, you're, you're like making ballistics with creamers. You're building a vomit chair uh, for making people nauseous, uh, you know, and, and also making these China shops for bulls to run through. Like, how do you research these projects? And do you have go-to reference books or reference sites that you use to to turn to?
5: I mean, we used to, We started out with books on the show. That's how long ago that we had started. Uh-huh. But uh, as we progressed through, you know, the Internet is just a wealth of knowledge, and it's easy to find experts to help you out in anything. So, uh, you know, we would just get on the phone and, you know, call somebody in Arizona and be like, Hey, so, if I were going to blow something up underwater, how would you do that? <laughs> <And> that's <laughs> a about more and more famous. It was a lot easier to make those phone calls. Sure. We had a point of reference and we didn't sound like crazy people. But, you know, we, we, we start where everybody else starts. We start on Google or, you know, you know, Snopes was a good way to find a couple myths or, you know, just kind of follow the leads down the internet rabbit hole.
4: Yeah. And and, and most of them turned out. I mean, of course, we have no idea how most of them turned out because I'm sure we, we, we get to see the best of the best. But It did sound like only a few of the myths on Mythbusters ever went really wrong. You know, you talk about the Cannon incident in particular that was near disastrous. But I'm curious about some of the the smaller, like, funnier things that just ended up not working on set and, and how you came up with some fixes for those.
5: Yeah, I was trying to like some of the stuff. I'm not sure even made it, but I didn't always watch all the episodes because I was so busy making the show that right. I was more interested in things. So, so when people ask questions, sometimes I'm like, Did that happen on TV or did that happen in real life? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> a rocket fuel myth had to make a spill, um, and it turned out that was illegal, so it didn't make the show. But I spent the day trying to put together this giant spill to spill rocket fuel from alcohol, and it. Went wacky and totally exploded. And I was, you know, on my own in the shop, just like beating it with a broom, trying to break things so that I could not catch things on fire. And I just wish other times with stuff like that, it went. Slightly wrong. to actually made air. But it was us being crazy.
3: So you have an aside in the book that uh, Jamie was more diligent about the safety of magnets than he was table saws. Can you talk a little bit about that?
5: Oh, well, no, I just mean that he took it very... He was diligent about safety on everything. Jamie had these... Um, safety protocols and he'd walk around and give you the tour of how to do things safely. He also accompanied it with the most horrific story he could find for each tool. So <laughs> you couldn't just hear about the table saw. You would hear about a time the table saw kicked back a board that splintered off and entailed a man and hear all the gory details of it. So that you would now look at every tool as if it were trying to attack you and had peace. It was terrifying but, uh, I think that he emphasized magnets because they seem so innocuous when you think, think magnets, you know, it doesn't have teeth like a table saw that come back it. They just look like magnets. But a magnet that's really strong, especially the ones he had, could take off a finger. It could, you know, pull something from the other side of the room they were so strong and, they, you know, kill you along the way. I think he just had a really dark way of explaining safety. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I think one of the things people don't, think about when they're watching a show like this is is what it might be like being a woman on the set of Mythbusters. And you talk about this and you know many times you make light of it understandably and and kind of embrace it. But you know, dealing with pregnancy onset and then postpartum depression as as well as things like being forced to wear prosthetic breasts to see if people tip better. And I'm I'm curious with with all of this in mind, how many women were actually on set and you know in these situations, how do you speak up in these kinds of environments?
5: Well, look to me, I may have' been the only woman that you saw on camera, but we did mm-hmm. have um, women behind the scenes. you know we had um, producers, directors, researchers, uh, we had a female sound soundie as well, so it wasn't just me and so it was it was definitely helpful that, uh, through the years as the production went on, we had more and more women working behind the scenes it, it, at times could have it, it was difficult. it was definitely difficult pregnant because nobody in television seems to have children, even just getting a porta potty on set was always a little bit of a struggle because all the guys on set were like, why don't you just go pee in the bushes like us, you know? Right, right. It was, it, um, the, the hardest thing I think was probably finding out that the other two guys I was working with, um, Corey and Grant, I, when I found out that there was a pay disparity and they were making um, significantly more than me, I sort of got. Uh, I, I, I had a moment, I had a little Norma ray moment where I was like, oh, wait a minute that's not okay. And mm-hmm. it was quite a fight to get to be paid the same guy. So from that point on, I actually put it in my contract that if I have the same title and I have the same job, you
3: cannot pay me that. I, I know. I, I was reading about that. It just makes you so sad. You look at places like uh, toy companies or NPR or like Discovery and you just assume they're like happy places and, and totally equal in, in things. And, and the fact that you have the same title and even some seniority and you weren't getting paid that is it's just so disturbing. How did you discover that? Like, how how did you figure out that you weren't getting paid the same amount?
5: You know, it, it was through casual conversation because we were, you know, we, we had a season coming up and we had contract negotiations coming up. And um, they're talking about how much we should ask for to get. And I was like, wait you're getting white. (laughs) It was, it was one of, you know, it was just, you know, since we all did have the same title and we all expected we were being paid the same, we started talking about, you know, what we should negotiate for the next season. And I, it was just sort of a shocking moment for me. That's when I decided to do what you should do when you, you're, you're kind of out of your, your league, you find expert help. So I went and I got an agent. And from then on, we uh, negotiated all our contracts as a League of All Nations.
4: All right. Well, we have a few more questions on a kind of a different note. But before we get to those, let's take a quick break.
2: apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast that's right
4: welcome back to part-time genius where we're talking to the author of a brand new book called crash test girl carrie byron Um, You know, I I don't know if I've just been living in a cave and hadn't heard about the White Rabbit Project. And after reading about your descriptions, I definitely want to binge watch this. But I I was hoping, could you tell us a little bit about the project and what some of the more fun experiments you've done on it are?
5: The White Rabbit Project was, it's based on that moment where you're on the Internet. You guys know this, considering where you came from, where you kind of... Falling down a rabbit hole because you looked up Velcro and all of a sudden you're you're <laughs> you're, you're looking at the space program like it's just one thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. So we had um, themes for each episode uh, like superhero powers that you can create with technology now or G forces or Great American heights. Um, so one of my favorites, which I believe is the first episode in the series is called superhero powers, where we each pick one that we could try to create with technology. And I picked mind control and, um, it is hilarious. I hooked up toward you a bunch of electrodes, invited him out to dinner and made sure that, uh, I, I could control him with the electrodes that were attached to me. So it was sort of like my brain powering my arm and my arms powering his arm. And then we sat down for a big messy spaghetti and wine dish. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was a delight, It was a delightful, fun, weird show to do. It's on Netflix. You can still catch it. Um, we had a full season airing. It, I don't think it got promoted like it should because we only did get the one. Piece.
4: <laughs> well, we'll definitely be. Uh, I'll definitely be checking it out.
3: So, um, what, one of the things you hinted at was this wonderful relationship with the fans of Mythbusters and how some of their ideas uh, led to um, things on the show. I, I'm curious, what, what are the best fan ideas that came through that, that you might remember? and Or what, what are the best interactions you've had with fans?
5: Oh, you know, with the message boards and with our relationship with them, we, you know, we were constantly talking with the fans. And, you know, even if we did an episode that they didn't like our methodology or how we did it, we would go back and revisit it and do it again because, you know, we would actually be talking with them on the message board. But I remember my favorite was a fourth-grade class found this ancient myth about paper being used as armor in ancient China. I was obsessed with it, so I, I pitched it and pitched it and pitched it until they, they did it. And, and, you know, we, we made a whole... Suit of armor out of paper, and we tested it with arrows and with swords, and we did it with a uh, uh, metal as well, and found out that paper actually was a viable option up until you know guns were invented. But that was from a fourth grade class, and who was just you know they're like, let's send this to Mythbusters. I love that. <laughs> That's
4: pretty awesome. You know, and, and hearing about, you know, working with kids and, and hearing questions from kids. I'm curious about the, the the projects. I know you do projects with your daughter. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those?
5: Um, well, my daughter and I do a lot of projects. Right now, we're deep into slime. We <laughs> like to make slime a lot. But, you know, we're you with you on that. My counter is covered with uh, shaving cream and glue and glitter. <laughs> That's, I would say, our current passion.
4: Yeah, I, I hear you on that. We've got a, a room, a craft room full of slime, of, of giant. I'm curious now whether Elmer's sells more glue for school use or more glue for slime. I remember even looking it up online to order another bottle of it. And even in the description of what Elmer's glue is, it says, great for making slime. <laughs> I think you can see how much the business has, has changed.
5: Oh my God, we should have all bought stock in slime about a year ago. I'm mean, there's <laughs> entire Instagrams that are just people squishing slime. I'm like, what? This
3: is crazy. Okay, Carrie, t- tell us what's next. What's the next big project that you're excited about?
5: All right. Well, I am still doing TV. I've got a bunch of stuff in the works I can't talk about. But what I can talk about is the next check mark on my bucket list. Um, now that this book thing is over with, I want to make toys. So I have just recently joined a startup called smart girls. Um, it is a scrabby startup. It's, it's ethos is that it's trying to teach computer science to girls who might otherwise not be engaged or interested in it. So I, we make coding robot dolls for girls. Um, it's, it's called smart girls. So I go check awesome. that out. There is a really cool self balancing Segway Barbie. That's our first project. And we have a million toys coming up in line that are really, really wild. Um, I'm going to be a toy maker.
4: That is so much fun. It it seems like you have uh, enough projects going right now, Carrie. I, I don't think you need to handle that much more. This is all really fun and really exciting. And I hope our listeners will check out your new book, Crash Test Girl. But Carrie, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks,
5: guys. It was fun talking to you.
4: Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
3: Tristan McNeil does the editing thing.
4: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
3: (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing.
1: We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network. Available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David.